Good afternoon, everybody. It's my pleasure to introduce my, my friend, fellow ACA, Don C., who's going to lead this afternoon's workshop. Completing this, oh yes, I'm sure he appreciates that. Thank Take you. Bow. Thank you. Completing the circle in the cycle of violence, covert and overt victims and victimizers. The ninth characteristic of the laundry list says ACAs confuse love with pity. Not only do we confuse love with pity, in this workshop we will see how ACAs confuse love with violence and punish those we pity and can rescue. And the rest of the description of this workshop is in your booklet. Let me tell you just a little bit about Don. He has been in ACA for 21 years and is a counselor and domestic counselor coordinator at CASA Youth Shelter in Los Alamitos. Don lives in Stanton, California. CASA serves teens and dysfunctional families and has one of the world's first ACA teen groups, which I'm very happy to announce that Don started. Don was very involved in the development of Chapter 18 in the ACA Big Book, so please welcome Don. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Don C., and I'm an adult child. Uh, I'd like to thank the convention committee, uh, the audience, for being here today, and uh, I'd also like to thank my fellow traveler, Mr. Marty S., who's responsible for a great deal of the work you're going to see here today, along with Steve S., who helped us uh, with some key ideas. I'd like to talk today about the circle in the cycle of violence and introduce you to some dynamics regarding the covert and overt victims and victimizers. But first, before we start, let me tell you about the future because somewhere in a galaxy far, far away and far in the future, there are going to be a bar. And these people have got the two-tiered model of addiction. So some of the things you might hear in this bar are Give me a shot of adrenaline with a cortisol back. Let me have an encaphalin with an endorphin chaser. Come on, give me a GABA with a twist. That's gamma amino butyric acid, by the way. And how about a serotonin sunrise with a little splash of acetylcholine to get her started? This is uh, what we think will be an enlightened view of uh, addiction in the future. What we've done is uh, you're going to be looking today at three related workshops. This is the third workshop in a series. The very first workshop we did at the convention in 2006 and it introduced the endogenous addiction and a two-tier addiction model as a core idea. This endogenous addiction is the addiction to the inside drugs. So the classic model of addiction as an exogenous substance problem is built upon what came first, which is addiction to the inside drug. So it can easily be said that before drug addicts were expert drug users, they were expert drug users. Tony A. in the ACA program introduced us to this concept when he spoke about being addicted to excitement. And originally that was written as addicted to fear, but it was modified and today we have it as addicted to excitement. Jack E., as he wrote the problem that was derived from the laundry list, he included the conditioning. Jack included 
the negative excitement and the learned behaviors as a result of this conditioning, it says in the problem. If we go further back in 2006, we introduced the concept of emotional sobriety. And believe it or not, Bill W. wrote about emotional sobriety in the August Grapevine in 1958. I don't want to date myself, but that's the year I was born. <laughs> Bill said that his false dependencies and his obsession with false dependencies was at the root of his neurotic behavior, and he postulated that perhaps one day there would be a Neurotics Anonymous to take care of the problems that were underneath the alcoholism. This workshop led to the second workshop in 2007 where we talked about getting out of the disease model over to the injury model, to the learned conditioning model. We called it traumatic conditioning. We then introduced an idea called the trauma strike. And this is very, very important because trauma, and we'll define this in a moment, is at the core of what we're doing and what we're recovering from, our response to the trauma that we've incurred as adult children. The trauma strikes that were both veiled and overt or not veiled in the home, we felt like it was a crime scene. And uh, the metaphor really fit because we are experiencing crimes when we're being abused as children. We connected that to a series of well-known lab experiments, Seligman and others, who learned about paralysis, perseveration and pathological attraction. We call those the three P's. We also looked at their effect on the body and the way we respond to these kind of stimuli by looking at the three H's of dysfunction. These are related to the condition of the body. Hypoxia, hypercarbia, and hypoglycemic. So we learned that our stress responses and the way that we react actually has biophysical impact to us. We learned that you can learn to be helpless. That when every move or failure to move is met by punishment, then we eventually learn to be helpless. We introduced the classic experiment with the dog that would jump over the fence at a mild electric shock. When we shot both sides, the dog quickly learns it's no use, so he just lays down and he learns to be helpless. We think that that's a common dynamic in an alcoholic and dysfunctional home. And we ended this workshop with the idea that in addition to becoming your own loving parent, as you're looking at this weekend, maybe first you need to become your own loving paramedic and save yourself and get yourself out of that place. So uh, that brings us to this year. This year we'd like to talk about how do we maintain this dissociative state that we can work ourselves into by our responses and by our presentation of the laundry list traits. We'd like to introduce the cycle, which you saw on the cover sheet, we'll get into that a little bit later, about this game of dissociation that's involved in the cycle of dissociative forgetting. And this is the classic struggle, fail, collapse, get up the next day and try it again. We'll expand on that. And we'll talk about the dosing transactions that are at the core of this dynamic. And we'll also talk about how to reverse it. How to withdraw from withdrawal. 
At this point, I'd like to have Leslie read something for you. All right. An operational statement of this problem that Don's referring to follows. This addiction to excitement can be seen as an endogenous or internal addiction to conflict, a continuously repeating cycle of alarm and collapse or fight flight and exhaustion. Children learn that they can pull themselves up out of depression and despair by focusing on the conflicts going on around them, which they then internalize in symbolic form. Their world is filled with the sights and sounds of conflict that drive them until they collapse in exhaustion, only to get back up and do the same thing all over again. Children are forced to remain in this pattern of addiction in order to stay above the ever-increasing sense of demoralization they feel at being trapped in a cycle of despair and the cycle becomes self-sustaining. Thank you, Leslie. I think of all the words on this page, there's one word that we need to look at, and that is forced. This is forced on the children. They don't get a choice. Uh, I don't know about many other adult children, but in my family, I didn't get a vote. Uh, the alcoholic, perpetrator, persecutor, the brood in my family was my father, and it was his way or the highway. And uh, there was no withdrawing from the game. We can restate this problem uh, as a cloudy sensorium inhibited motororium. The problem is a progressive movement into unreality which is our signal blocking from within ourselves and a perpetual distortion from the outside. At the same time, there's a loss of responsibility or the ability to respond. And we lose that because we become paralyzed and we compulsively perseverate. We keep going back to the negative excitement over and over again. Can't seem to break out of the cycle. The cycle is prompted by trauma and it's very important at this point to take a moment and connect the trauma strike with the definition of trauma. When we look at trauma strike, what we're really trying to do is quantify an exact moment when the trauma is at its maximum. When you think of the term strike, you think of the lion chasing the gazelle across the savanna, and at the moment that lion leaps and strikes the gazelle is the highest point of arousal. That You can't get no more stimulus than that point. So we're going to call that a strike. The basic definition of trauma is maximum arousal of our sympathetic nervous system by pain or the threat of pain. And as I work with the kids at the shelter, I use a little illustration to, to explain this. I tell them I'm standing here in your group, and all of a sudden, through the door, burst a 250-pound Raiders football player. And he runs over here, and he tells me, I'm going to bust your nose, and he hits me right in the nose. Of course that's trauma. My nose bleeds, my bodily response, my heart rate goes up, my respiration rises, the adrenaline is injected into my system. And that's from a direct experience of trauma. But suppose that that door flies open, that big 250 pound Raiders guy runs over and he says, I'm going to bust your nose. But he doesn't. Do I have a similar reaction? Is my heart beating? Is my respiration up? You better bet it is. So the fact that we do not have to have physical trauma 
for maximum arousal. Very, very important to keep that point because trauma is at the core of what we're talking about here. As we look at trauma and we add the concept of a trauma strike, we can start to put some math to this. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I never was good at math, so I didn't really like going here. But it answers the mail. It really tells us that we can have simultaneous effects of trauma. We can have a trauma strike. When this trauma strike occurs, the natural resistance will present and we get a progressive hardening. We also get a progressive breakdown of the function and the structure or disintegration. And notice that we spell this with a D-Y-S. It's not like a classic falling apart molecularly. It's a disintegration of the psychocell. So we can look at this disorganization and discontrol and a very uh, prominent researcher named Menager has done some work in this area that led us to this. As we look at our withdrawal, we see that there's a sequence. Whenever we have a trauma, we have a need to react to these things that there's a very predictable sequence. First, there's the flexor withdrawal. You touch something hot, you jerk your hand back. It's automatic. We also have an emotional and sensory withdrawal. It's not always automatic, but it's often executed. And we use the biochemical, we use our dissociative forgetting, we use the excitement, the chaos, the chemicals, and the acting out that we're all so familiar with to emotionally and sensory withdrawal. We also can cognitively withdraw. And as you notice here, as you go down, it gets more severe, the physical withdrawal, the emotional and sensory, and finally the cognitive withdrawal. We just aren't there at this point. We aren't present. It's a retreat from conscious attending and conscious knowing because the conscious attending and the conscious knowing is unbearable. It just hurts too much. If we can't get ourselves safe at this point, the circuit breaker kicks in and down we go. We crash. We go unconscious and we literally crash the system to save it. Uh, there's nothing we can do at this point when we get to the lowest levels and we're literally walking unconscious. If it gets worse, pretty soon the circuit breaker trips and down we go. And that's when we crash to save. So the purpose of recovery as we're going to present to you today is not necessarily as you might have heard. What we're looking at is to reverse the protective sequence of withdrawal. So we're going to withdraw from that withdrawal sequence. Which brings us to the cycle of dissociative forgetting. Take a look at this for a moment. And we realize that as we withdraw from reality, the reality that hurts, the reality that was terrifying in our home, we have a repetitious cycle here. We we start out making an effort. We think, well, we're going we're gonna to do it different today. We're actually going to get through this today. So we make an effort. As we come around this circle, the frustration with the games that we're playing with those people that are involved in our families, with our peers, with our significant others, and the frustration builds, we become confused. I don't know many adult children that know what normal is. And in this place, we're looking for normal. We're trying to find some keys that work for us, some scripts that will keep us safe, but most of them don't. And we finally come to a point of panic, desperation, and rage. 
At this point, we began to compulsively avoid people. We began to avoid reality. We look at the symbolic playing in our heads of the images, of the sounds, the different transactional patterns that we've been conditioned with all our lives. And we get into substances. The inside substances often aren't enough. We go to the outside substances and we add to those. And it's important to know that at this point, if you're trying to make an honest effort at recovery, and you're maintaining technical sobriety, and you're off the bottle, you're off the bag, you're off the needle, but you're still failing, and you find those urges, and you look down one day, and there's a bottle in your hand. This point is what short circuits those earnest recovery efforts. When I first started ACA in 1987, I had a sobriety problem. I couldn't stay sober. I was drinking and using every kind of drug I could get my hands on. And this cycle, I continued to make earnest efforts, and I continued to fail. And the shame, the internal shame that I induced upon myself during those cycles was a self-perpetuating problem. The more I withdrew, the more this occurred, the more shame I felt, the harder I tried, and it just got worse and worse. Eventually, this leads to collapse and despair like the dog who's laid down and we just can't do it anymore, we collapse. And we go into unconsciousness and we try to forget. And we do many, many things to maintain the dissociative barrier against remembering these things. And so we eventually come to, we forget what it was that we were supposed to remember, but we can't stand to remember it. And now we're back on guard, ready to start it all over again. Now this cycle can happen in a day, it can happen in an hour, sometimes it can happen fairly quickly. But the point here is it's repeated over and over and over. And there's a strange duality. Back in 1921, Freud's protege, Sandor Ferenczi, wrote that the repetition compulsion in traumatized is simply a renewed attempt at a better conclusion. So if we look at this cycle, we can see that this renewed attempt is the first part of the cycle. So you get up the next day, you put one crisis, one chaotic situation behind you, and you say, all right, I'm going to do it this time. I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm not going to get into that pattern. And again, it happens over and over primary means whereby that this problem is continued is the dissociative dosing transaction. These are to human beings like what that DDT was to those little bugs they used to put in there. It's just as poison because it is giving and receiving insult and injury. As we go through our presentation, you're going to see the family dynamics as we begin to discuss them and how these dosing transactions occur between people within the family. The bottom line is a successful transaction is one in which the insult and injury leads both or all, maybe it's the whole family. All of those players, more absent than present, dissociated, unconscious, stupefied, and more there then regress than here now. 
And so most conditions become dissociated, hypoxic, hypercarbic, and hypoglycemic. And we see this in those dynamics of families when I'm presented with a family at our facility and there are alcoholism, addiction, and massive dysfunction. And we have teens just trying to get through. We see that the entire family gets caught up in this. It's not just one of the people. We'll see that a family comes in and they bring a troubled young person and they say that person's the problem. And uh, we often see, as a matter of fact, almost all the time we see that they're just this presenting symptom of the bigger problem. The bigger problem is this dissociative dosing transaction that's given freely, abundantly, and often. Rod is asking that we define the three words hypoxic, hypercarbic, and hypoglycemic. Hypoxic and a lack of oxygen hypoxic, so you're not getting enough ventilation, you're not getting air in your machine to keep it running. Hypercarbic is an excess of carbon dioxide, so when you're, uh, you're flooding your system, it's being smothered here. Hypoglycemic is the blood sugar, which is the lowering of the blood sugar, uh, no energy, you're running on empty. So you don't have any air, you got too much CO2, and you're running on empty. A surefire recipe for exhaustion and collapse. Rod is asking, how are these related to the dissociative behavior? These are a result of the dissociative behavior. What we have done is learned to condition ourselves to the point that we can dissociate using this physical depleted condition to keep our feelings at bay. We just can't stand, we can't afford to remember those feelings that we're trying to keep away from us. And so the physical depletion, the unbalance that we feel, the utter exhaustion, is a pretty good way for not feeling. And these are just physical conditions. We're tying the emotional, the transactional nature of the family dynamics back to the somatic side so that you can see that response in the body and actually what it's doing to you. You push an engine hard enough, for long enough, and it's going to break down. We'll have a slide in a few moments that shows a little bit about how that works. So what we have here is what Marty and I are calling the complete picture. For those of you who worked with us last year, you may remember the ACA schematic that we distributed. The ACA schematic uh, was a overview of the recovery process and uh, as we pass these out I'll describe that schematic. It essentially had the basic five needs that a person needs to maintain. We had the six essential tasks of recovery and the schematic proposed what happened to us, what do we do about it, how do we do it, and what to expect. But let's take a look at the complete picture for just a moment. And what you're going to see is that uh, there are basically three sections to this. There is a top section which shows the characteristics of an adult child. There's a middle section which has some dynamics and some diagrams relating to those dynamics. And then at the bottom you're going to see characteristics of an integrated person. At the top, top left, you see our laundry list. We believe that the laundry list represents the role of victim, 
and what we're talking about a rescuer type one. Each of these persons are unintegrated and emotionally intoxicated and on the other side, on the right side of the top, you see the reaction formation list. Type 2 rescuer can be a perpetrator at the drop of a hat. The victim described by the laundry list is a true victim and is often helped by the rescuer. At the bottom of this list, you're going to see characteristics of an integrated person. So we have the laundry list, and this is essentially the flip side of the laundry list, or the opposite of the laundry list. So let's take a look at one of those, and we'll see that uh, trait number one, we became isolated and afraid of people and authority figures, and the flip becomes we move out of isolation and are not unrealistically afraid of other people, even authority figures. So as you look at the laundry list and the flip side of the laundry list, you see that they're inverse. That the laundry list shows the traits that we have evolved as a result of the traumatic conditioning. The flip side shows what will happen when we move out of, when we withdraw from withdrawal and we move into recovery. If we look up at the new list, this is the first that this has been seen today. Let's take a look at the reaction formation list, or it will never happen to me. So number one, to cover our fear of people and our dread of isolation, we tragically become the very authority figures who frighten others and cause them to withdraw. A good friend of ours, Dr. John Friel, said, the opposite of dysfunctional is dysfunctional. <laughs> and that's sort of what this one talks to. If we move down to number three, and I won't read all of these, number three, we frighten people with our anger and threat of belittling criticism. The persecutor really knows no other way to connect. The only way a persecutor can connect is through anger and belittling criticism. Number four, we dominate others and we abandon them before they can abandon us or we avoid relationships with dependent people altogether. To avoid being hurt, we isolate and dissociate and thereby abandon ourselves. If we move over to number five, we live life from a standpoint of a victimizer and are attracted to people we can manipulate and control in our important relationships. Number seven, we make others feel guilty when they attempt to assert themselves. Number nine, even though we're ostensibly rescuing these people, we hate people who play the victim and beg to be rescued. We deny that we've been hurt and are suppressing our emotions by the dramatic expression of pseudo feelings. And as we go on, we look at number 12, we manage the massive amount of deprivation we feel coming from abandonment within the home by quickly letting go of relationships that threaten our independence. Not too close. This is the guy who buys the dog and calls him, go away. So he can stand on the porch and yell, come here, go away, come here, go away. So this is a dynamic many adult children know all too well. 
But both of these rolls on the top are in the game of dissociation. Each of these rolls are givers of insult and injury delivered by those dissociative dosing transactions we're talking about. If you look at the bottom at the asterisk, insult and injury is punishment, abandonment, conditional acceptance, and conditional care. As we look at the middle of this page, we see that there are some roles. If we look at the completing the cycle of violence, as we close the circle, we realize that there are multiple roles. There are about eight different roles that can be taken here in this different uh, possibilities. We have a male victim who can be an overt victim or a covert victimizer. We have a male victimizer who can be a covert victimizer, an overt victim. And on the female side, we have a female victim who can be overt victim or a covert victimizer. We have a female victimizer who can be an overt victimizer or a covert victim. If we try to find some examples here, we see the male victim. This is the young man who may have gotten molested at an early age by an authority figure who goes on to become a victimizer. This male victimizer who has been a hidden victim may go on to be an overt victimizer. If we look over, and we can hang a jacket on these guys. We got them nailed. We got websites to keep up with them. But on the other side, on the female side, we have a female victim, which is the overt victim. This is the molestation victim, the rape victim. And of course, we can describe that very clearly. And our heart goes out to those people. No one should have to undergo any of these things. But the female victimizer, the overt victimizer is the Eileen Vermos, the woman in Florida who murdered the mass murderer. I think most people can remember her. She's an overt victimizer. And the covert victim. One of the things that's been really difficult to untangle, and in my own personal recovery, this is very true, is in the female covert victimizer. The female covert victimizer is what I like to call a loving abuser. This is abuser and loving mother club. I get these in my work at the shelter. And uh, at the shelter, I often encounter very hurtful dynamics in families. And we often have moms that come in and say, I'm hurting so bad that see all of the things you did to hurt me, you're the problem, so I have to put you in the shelter to help you. So they can be very abusive, covertly, from the victim position. Very, very difficult to deal with. The denial is uh, massive, and the roles are hidden, and we're only now just beginning to disentangle some of those particular dynamics, particularly on the female covert victimizer side. As we look at bringing this family drama to a close, the classic drama triangle, we've expanded by bringing out the rescuer type one and type two. Again, the rescuer type one is an earnest rescuer. They often have a friend or a confederate, and that friend or a confederate is sometimes the rescuer type two. The earnest victim will usually remain a victim. 
the type 2 rescuer again is a victim waiting to happen but at the same time can flip to the persecutor at the drop of a hat so it's very important to note that that rescuer to persecutor is terrified if we think the victim is afraid certainly this is true the victim can undergo uh, massive abuse however the persecutor is even more terrified of abandonment and uh, you see some of the reactive behaviors as a result how does one bunch of dry drunks create the next bunch how do you get drunk without the bottle and how do we get emotionally sober remember technical sobriety is not enough emotional sobriety is the key well there's a demand that most families make and this is that demand we need you to be a player to cope with and endure our hyperdependency syndrome everyone in our family is dependent on the other to a very high level of magnitude the introjects are the means whereby the game of dissociation is transmitted intergenerationally along with the justification this is the apologetic the rationale for the superstitious or the wasting of energy the dyspanetic dominator competitor view of the world let's just make war on it if we don't understand it we'll make war on it if it hurts us let's make war on it if it's odd or new we'll just make war on it we got to play the game in the family there's no option you're in I've worked with families who have a person try to withdraw and when that occurs the person is met with vicious retaliatory response by the other players in the game I've worked with many families in my counseling career and as I've seen families with multiple siblings one sibling shows up at our shelter after a horrid incident where the police are called and there's chaos and and massive pain all around and the one kid comes in and separates for a few days and they get a little bit of relief just a little and we give them that little mustard seed of hope and they they begin to think well maybe maybe I can get out of this maybe I can withdraw and then the family comes in and they come in with the best of intentions and the loving mother and the loving father clothes on and the supportive sibling clothes and the minute that that kid that's been out of the game for a day or two says I'm taking my cards off the table they get attacked they get viciously attacked and brought back into the game because they're taking the drugs away if you have experience with drugs or alcohol you know what it's like when someone takes your drug or your alcohol away and when we do this in a family when we try to withdraw we might as well walk over and snatch the bottle right out of their hand because the same kind of response we're going to be met with we have to continue to play the game but the answer is to eject those introjects those lessons that have been pounded into us by living in an alcoholic and dysfunctional environment we got to stop the game and stop the insanity 
But the essential point is that this etiology, this traumatic etiology of addiction is really based in trauma. And we got to stop the dissociation addiction. We're addicted to being dissociated. And if we don't do it with alcohol, we don't do it with drugs, we'll do it with excitement, we'll do it with fear, we'll do it with chaos, we'll do it with blame, we'll do it with shame, we'll do it with any one of a plethora of these negative transactions. If we look at addiction, we go back, ad desere, to say, Latin says that addiction means to say yes to a strong habit. If we have a strong habit of chaos and transactional malfeasance in the home, we are addicted to that. So we are addicted to the game. And what happens, at least what happened in my home, we were beaten mindless and senseless. We had active abuse. This is the yelling, the screaming, the pushing, the shoving, the active abuse. We had malignant neglect. Dad don't show up. Mom doesn't take care of us. If dad does come to the Little League game, he comes drunk and he beats up one of the neighbor's dads. Uh, so this is malignant neglect, just not being, not being there for me. The punishment, again, in homes where every move or every failure to move is met with punishment, learned helplessness rears its ugly head, and we learn to be helpless. If we can't fight, if we can't flee, we finally try to freeze. And if we can't freeze, what else is there to do but just dissociate and check out? Abandonment, beaten up from the inside, desperation, panic, rage, fear. I'd like to take a moment to share with you the definition of abandonment that I share with the kids. Everyone knows abandonment is being left on the street corner. If my ride don't show up, if they leave me, they don't come get me, I've been abandoned. But that's this small definition of abandonment. Let's expand our definition of abandonment. Abandonment truly is the failure of the caregivers or the neutrers to recognize the true effort of the cared for or the neutered. It works like this. If my dad beats me with a leather belt, he's traumatized me, and he's abandoned me emotionally. He's not attending to my needs. He's not recognizing my needs. All of that's easily unraveled. But suppose I try really hard to please my parent. Let's say I've had trouble with math at school, and I've worked really, really hard. I've done extra work. Without anybody knowing, I've really applied myself, and I get my test, and it's an A. All right, you know, an A. And I run home to my dad. Dad, dad, look. And I run up to my dad, and he looks up from the chair with alcohol, yellowed eyes, and says, damn it, boy, don't you see I'm watching TV? I just got abandoned right there. I got emotionally abandoned. And in most dysfunctional families, it happens daily. The true effort of the child, the true effort of the future, just doesn't get recognized. And therefore, that's abandonment. 
And abandonment can be as large as a stone or as small as a grain of sand. But when you put in your basket a big stone or 10,000 grains of sand, the result is a pretty heavy burden no matter which. So abandonment is key. All of these things lead to stress, strain, and pressure, which lead to tension, pressure, and pain. And there's only so far that we can adjust Eventually, and we'll use another scientific term, meantime before failure, at some point the machine breaks down. It might be a hundred thousand cycles, it might be a million cycles. And in some cases, having good genetics is a curse. Because the strong body, you can burn that candle at both ends for a long time before you reach MTBF. But you will reach it eventually. As we undergo this transaction, we realize that this profile is both agony and despair. And for those who have had the unfortunate circumstance of being uh, labeled or termed bipolar, this has some correlation in this sense. There's a feeling and rational thinking zone that's in the middle, but remember our responses to these stimulus, these traumas, these abandonments, these shamings, these blamings. As these occur in the alcoholic home, through the different victim, victimizers, covert and overt, we have agony, we have maximum upregulation by pain and threat. So our little hearts can't beat no harder, we can't gasp any deeper. And at the same time, sometimes we're in such despair, we're grieving and hurting so bad that our bottoms are really, really low. And if we go far enough down, again, we get a, a conscious, unconscious condition, a dissociative condition. And if we keep pushing that towards the downside, we'll crash the system again. The endogenous processes that are involved with this dosing is, there are five basic processes. And those are arousal, the stimulants, sedation, the downers, pain killing, the thought regulation, stop, start, and focus, and an antidotal pleasure, which is pleasure to mask the pain. We see this in the football player that came through the door that busted my nose, the arousal, the adrenaline that hit, the stimulus, the sedation, the painkillers. We all know that eating large amounts of food or sexual activity releases dopamine and endorphins. These are painkillers. Thought regulations and anecdotal pleasures. These are the drugs that are inside that we are attempting to manipulate. Harry Stack Sullivan brought in a concept of maximum tension and anxiety equals terror. This again shows the cycle whereby we're stimulated, we have maximum tension and anxiety, and uh, we power up, we hit the red line, we drop back down below homeostasis, and we can go to the bottom. But this cycle repeats itself, and we get into a tension, pressure, pain spiral that just winds us tighter and tighter and tighter, and the surge doesn't work anymore. We just can't make this work. So what happens is it comes to the body. We've heard that trauma is stored in the body. Here are some of the indicators. 
We play the pain to stay insane. We play these situations, the transactions, to keep the drugs flowing, to keep the pain away. What we have as a result are striated muscles. We have the bracing of muscles. We have the smooth muscles in the gut have a response where they are upset. Our skeletal musculars uh, are also racked by the result of the continued stress. We even have organ damage and we can uh, have disease and breakdown of our immune system and uh, wind up in a heck of a mess. The problem is fear and confusion in Las Vegas. How do you find the source of this? I work with the kids and uh, even within my own recovery work, my body tells me so much. My body tells me where the tension is. Uh, when I get upset, when I have emotional intoxication creeping into my life, between my shoulder blades lights up. I can feel myself get tied in the shoulders and when I do that I know something's going on. I gotta take a spot inventory. I gotta go back and look at what's going on in my life. The last few minutes, the last few hours, the last couple of days. And if I do a good tenth step right there, I can find it. And it's usually something small, but it's always there. My muscles, bones, and nerves, the entrapment, the gastrointestinal tract, and again, organ damage. And if we do all this right, according to the rules of our family, the play's a hit. We've got successful reproduction of the dynamics of the cycle of violence. The body gets reconfigured, it gets held the same way, and the biochemistry is reconstituted. So if we look back in our past and we see the terrifying moments spent at home cringing in fear of an abusive adult, and we look at a relationship today when we're sitting at home cringing in fear at an abusive adult, they're now just a relationship, maybe not a parent, maybe it's a husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, maybe even a child and a parent. But it feels the same way. So the terror we felt when we were five years old is the same terror we feel today. It feels exactly the same. The mind gets refocused on distractors. We can't see reality. We're looking at the replacements, people who are our stand-ins. And we become unfocused, we're made stupid, we stupefy ourselves through drugs, alcohol, and acting out behaviors. And once again, we face the world with eyes wide shut, waiting to exhale. Fighting, fleeing, or freezing until we pass out and get back up and do it all over again. And this is just thinking of one person. Think of four or five in the family doing this all at one time. It can really get crazy. The next slide we have here is uh, from John Kabat-Zinn. I'd like to attribute this illustration to him. Uh, I'd like to look at this very closely. On the left side of this picture, we have the flight from reality characterized by unconsciousness, stupefaction, dissociation, and essentially being absent from the scene. On the right side, we have the present. This is staying present with the past, in the present, maintaining or reestablishing presence, 
guided by the conscience feeling rational self. On the right side is a return to concrete reality. What Zen proposed was that the body has reactions to stressors and uh, they come from internal and external stressors. So we can see that our cardiovascular, our musculoskeletal, our nervous system, and our immune system can be affected by internal stress events. As the external stress events can also affect us. We have a response that's biophysical with the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the adrenals on both sides and they are responsible for pumping out these drugs that the endogenous substances. On the left side, as we begin to internalize and inhibit the stress response, this is keeping the brake on. The stimulation of the events, the trauma, the abandonment, the shame is the accelerator pedal that's causing us the stimulation. The inhibition is the brake pedal. So it's like going 90 miles an hour with the brake on. We have chronic hyperarousal. We see that as hypervigilance. We have high blood pressure, arrhythmia. We have sleep disorders, head and body aches, and anxiety. Of course, this leads to maladaptive coping. The maladaptive coping, self-destructive behaviors, overworking, hyperactivity, overeating. We come over to substance dependency, alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, caffeine, food, and quite predictably breakdown we break down. We have physical and psychological exhaustion. We lose our drive, our enthusiasm. We undergo depression. We, if we do have genetic predispositions, they crop up here as we become weakened. We have heart attacks and cancer. On the present side, which is where we'd like to be and where the end result of recovery will take us, is that we have mindfulness. We have appraisal of thoughts, our feelings. We can actually respond and we realize uh, there may be arousal, but there's an awareness of our body, awareness of our muscles, awareness of our breathing. We have a full context. We are able to see the various elements. We have emotion-focused strategies and problem-focused strategies. We see new options. We have quicker recovery of our mental equilibrium and homeostasis, and we achieve calmness and balance of mind. So the characteristics of an integrated person in bullet form, open to experience, internally located, non-conforming, autonomous, field independent, phenomenological, psychologically differentiated, this is individuated, not enmeshed or codependent to another, emotionally sober, physically healed, ontologically secure, spiritually awake, and fully restored. We would like to think that the work we do in ACA and the work we do on ourselves can take us to the same side so that we can be present and not flee from reality. There's a curious thing about trauma strikes we have uh, an ideal that we say about recovery, which is no tension except tonus, no reaction except to reality. The no tension except tonus is here at a resting state. The muscles are neither so loose as to be unable to respond, 
nor so rigid as to be inflexible. So in the middle of this is the relaxed state. Yet when we have trauma, we don't come back to the relaxed state. So we created a little illustration to show that when you get trauma strikes, you don't come back to zero. You come back down a little higher. So eventually what happens is you have a heterostasis. You're no longer at this resting state. You've been hit over and over again with trauma strikes, so now instead of sitting here at 50%, you're sitting over here at 90, 100% all the time. This is the chronically aroused state, the hypervigilant state that we speak about. As we come to the question about how do we integrate this liberated child and the emancipated adult, how do we toss out those not knees? In this particular illustration, we're going to see that we have on one side a contaminated adult, the own guard expectant self the adult that's been repeatedly traumatized, who has been traumatically conditioned, is the contaminated adult, the addict. This person expects calamity, catastrophe, progressive discontrol, disintegration, and atomistic disintegration. In other words, chaotic non-entity. This person eventually feels as if they will disintegrate into nothingness. On the other side is the uncontaminated adult, sober side of the self, with the possibilities that they can acknowledge a bottom and surrender, test reality and re-perceive it. It can be okay. Say yes to detox, not retox. Retoxing with the inside chemical. Becoming willing to stop defaulting to habit, in other words, to withdraw from a withdrawal, and work the program and take the steps. But let's take a look here at this circular diagram because in the bottom, in the little bitty circle, is our inner child, our true self. And what they're saying is, I'm still down here. I'm still here. But what's occurred in our lives to get this little guy impressed? E-N-P-R-E-S-S-E-D. Impressed, compressed. What has occurred is the lessons that we've been taught, the security operations that have kept us alive, that have resulted in the laundry list traits, have been introjected and internalized as a defense. So we're protecting this little guy here, but the punishing, abandoning, loving parents and the punishment, abandonment, and love that they bring to this situation has impressed or compressed the inner child. And so what we see here is the contaminated adult who cannot deal with the real world outside. So the contaminated adult walls off their world and depends on the security operations to get through. So they're maintaining the continuous cycle of dissociative forgetting through using these security operations that have been pounded into them over the years. And they can't get out to the real world. There may be a small pipeline where from time to time they can get a little breath of the real world. So there's a little hope always maintained. But 
this prison that has been created has been created from isolation and from the intrusion, the introjects from the outside. So the conditions of worth, acceptable, and survival here, these punishing, abandoned, loving parents, we get should on, shoulds and should nots, oughts and ought nots, must and must nots, and permissible and impermissible. So the child is constantly searching for is it okay or is it not? What security operation works here? So this diagram more than any other shows the trap that the adult child gets caught in. Question, Rod? Uh, the squares we call personal evaluation and response sets, or PERS. Literally what happens is we're taught how to respond. So every person we interact with in this game of dissociation in our dysfunctional families teaches us something. And we categorize these personal evaluations and response sets. So, I meet a man with a green shirt, with glasses, and the minute I see you, Rod, I, I search my memory bank, I'm, I'm and I find something that works. Now, you have a behavior that could be hurtful or threatening, so I immediately search again and find something that works. The problem is, I've been given bad stuff. These dysfunctional, maladaptive coping mechanisms, my survival skills that I can describe in many of the various laundry lists, they don't work anymore. But I depend on them, it's all I know. So those personal evaluation and response sets, the security operations, that automatically occur. I can no more stop them than I can stop breathing <coughs> until I take the steps, work the program, and disentangle these things. The question is, these are coping skills that we've learned through growing up. You're exactly right. We've learned them through growing up. We've learned how to withdraw from reality. We've learned how to use these false assumptions and false dependencies to make sense of something that's insensible. And uh, of course it's not normal. We don't know what normal is. And uh, this just reinforces that chaotic environment that we're trapped in when we finally do find ourselves at the bottom of that well and no one there for us. The question is, are the answers for resolving this, the standard, go to meetings, take the steps, work the program, uh, the easy answer is yes. Uh, another expanded answer is, and we'll get to a slide in a moment, but any helpful reversal step is useful. So whether it be classic 12-step recovery or whether it be going to a nutritionist, going to a physical therapist to take care of your body, uh, anything you do to withdraw from the game is a reversal step. Debbie? The, the man who's, who's Debbie, uh, you're absolutely right, and I owe a special thanks to Debbie M. for John Cabot-Zinn. Uh, Marty was doing some work, and uh, Debbie brought this idea, and as you can see, it's become especially fruitful. Uh, the Zen model 
the stress response and being able to put the present side on it really brought it into focus for ACA. Yeah, he has, he has people do about, he asks for like 45, 50 minutes worth of yoga or meditation or a body scan that people should do that come to him every day. Debbie is saying that John Kabat-Zinn uh, actually includes yoga in his therapeutic treatment. And he he takes it to hospitals, he works that body side. And, and what we see as we move forward in adult children of alcoholics is that we do see the need for working that body side because our bodies have been so racked. And, it's a particularly gentle, you know, yes. yoga is, it's not running around a racetrack, it's breathing deeply and bringing as much, you know, kindness and mm -hmm. mercy to your body. I think what, what I'm hearing uh, Debbie say is that yoga is very gentle, it brings kindness and mercy to the body, and that's exactly what we need uh, as adult children. We need to de-stress the body and begin to withdraw from this abuse that we're heaping upon ourselves. Uh, almost anything, and we have a slide coming up which talks to that, and again we go back to mathematics, but uh, I'll get to it just in a moment. A clarifying statement we can say is that the problem for people who are response impaired is that they're unable when it comes to meeting the requirements for safe and sane living. The solution is to restore response ability. This is another little word that I play with the kids and they really get it. If you want to really find joy, work with some teenagers because they just don't have the resistance. You know, they haven't been beaten up for 25, 30, 40, 50 years. So their layer of the crust is not quite as thick. And, and you get through that and they just accept this. This word, response-ability, they come to our shelter and the fingers are wagged in their face and say, you need to be more, more response-able. And it's one word, responsible. And they hear it often. And when I break that word down and say, how in the world can you be responsible if you're unable to respond? So responsibility, two words. And the kids just get it. It snaps and they understand. How can I be responsible if I can't even respond? It's impossible. So we have to re-embody of manifesting that ideal that I mentioned about no tension except tonus and no arousal except by reality. In other words, is this real or is it memorex? Is this really going on in my life or is this just a recording of something that played back long ago? We need to desymbolize the psyche and reorganize the body. Why are we doing all of this? What is the goal of recovery? There are a lot of people out there in the different theoretical orientations and the different communities. We have people who work with the body, the soma, the yoga, the people who focus a lot of effort on the somatic side. Then we have the people who have the body lead the mind. They focus on the body and fold in the psychic. We also have the people who have the mind leading the body, the psychosomatic. And then we have those camps, those groups of people who work solely with the mind, the psychic part. But we think that a new bumper sticker probably should be detox, not retox. 
So paradoxically, the solution is to concentrate on de-stressing the machine, the yoga, to soothe and heal the pain-wracked body, what all that means psychologically and spiritually. This would include moving toward and finally reaching the two therapeutic ideals, no excess tension in the body, and a neutral reaction to the symbolic associations and mental representations of trauma. So detox, not retox. Again, you can put the bottle down, but you gotta put down the inside hypodermic and the inside pipe and the inside bag as well. Because if we've detoxed on the outside and we're retoxing on the inside, we're only fooling ourselves. It's not gonna work. In short form, it gets pretty easy. Excavate the archaic, extinguish the habit history. We unhook those habits of distraction and avoidance and we stop playing this game, Eric Burns' game of alcoholic, and more fitting for the ACA, the dry drunk. And we have to make sure we're detoxing, not retoxing. As we disinhibit our autonomic nervous system, the antagonistic side, we look at a couple of ideas. I mentioned going 90 miles an hour with the brake on. The accelerator is a stimulation. The inhibition of the response is the brake. Imagine you could probably drive a car by holding the brake down hard and just putting the pedal on the floor. And you could modulate that direction by easing off the brake a little bit, just enough that that car would start going down the road. And you probably could drive that way, but just imagine the forces involved. Remember, you got your foot on the floor, it never comes up. And the brake is on the whole time. If you let off that brake a little too much, or a little too much on the gas, that car hits the ditch and it hits it fast. So going 90 miles an hour with the brake on is a precarious existence that many adult children know all too well. We talked about that kid down there, the impressed child, trying to be liberated, trying to join with an emancipated adult who can't, whose security operations have trapped them in this isolated prison, and who says, I'm still down here. I'm still here. And finally, the classic WC feel. Go away, kid, you bother me, right? When this little kid comes up and says, hey, I'm still down here, and that contaminated adult says, go away, you bother me. And so the kid has to go away. We want to reset our system to the pre-trauma homeostasis that we've lost. We have achieved heterostasis. Remember the trauma as we set at 50%, we get hit and we come back to 52, we get hit again, we come back to 55, we get hit again at 60, we get hit again at 65, we get hit again and again and again, and finally we're running at 90, 95% of arousal level, or heterostasis. And we gotta reset that system to get back to the pre-trauma condition. Many of you have heard about the amygdala. This is the animal brain. This is the fight, flee, response. Below the amygdala is an even more basal level of 
autonomous control. We call it the striatum. The striatum fires automatically. There's no choice. When you're faced with a stimulus that the striatum range is appropriate for, it happens. So what we believe is that this conditioned automatic security operations those squares that are keeping that kid impressed and not allowing the adult to emancipate and be free, we believe that those have been conditioned even below the amygdala. So they are automatic and so deeply embedded that we must work to the automatic habits and reprogram that machine. As we look at the process of reassociation, withdrawing from withdrawal, there's two primary things we have to do. We have to remind, which is associated with the content of our experiences. And we have to remember. Notice that we don't have these words as the classic single word. They're hyphenated, and they're that way for a reason. We have to remind and remember. And as we look at the effect and memory, we can finally get a completed experience. But this is only when we bring ourselves back online. And, Rod, I knew we'd get back to the math. You ask, was the steps, was the meetings, was the work, was the things that we do useful? Well, yes, they are, because in any carefully managed systemic process of reversal, any recovery event leading to ontological well-being is a reversal step. The yoga, paying attention to the hydration, to the ventilation of our body, to our proper stimulus levels, getting adequate rest and restorative sleep, these are all very, very important. Each one is a reversal step. Coming here today is a reversal step. Having a good meal, sleeping well last night, those are all reversal steps, each and every one of them. But you have to be really careful. If I came here today and I didn't get ready in time and I had to rush and I'm worried about getting here and I'm on the freeway and I have to give a few people the no your number one salute as I'm driving, maybe I'm really not using this as a recovery event. Maybe I'm using it as another drug. So be very careful. When I first went into AA in 1987, I immediately found the meanest, ugliest, baddest sponsor in the whole room who immediately put me in my place and gave me some drugs. They gave me shame. They gave me high expectations. They gave me unrealistic demands. They gave me false dependencies, and I walked out of there as high as a kite. And I went right to the package store and got me some alcohol because I needed the anesthesia. And I didn't even know it. And I spent 15 years going in and out of the rooms of AA and NA, constantly dissociating, thinking, getting up that next day, putting that bottle down, putting the bag away and thinking, Tomorrow, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it this time. And I went right back into my cycle of dissociative forgetting. 
only to wind up with a heaping helping of shame at the end and wondering again, is something wrong with me? Why can't I do it? There's a guy over there. I know he's been here a long time. There's finger marks on that chair where he's been grabbing it. You know? Well, I didn't know he was as high or higher than I was. He just wasn't, didn't have any alcohol in his system. He had massive amounts of adrenaline and cortisol and the different stress-related compounds. And I think that's where, when I heard one day, hey, Don, did you hear about Frank? I'm like, no, man, what happened to Frank? He had 29 years sober. He got drunk Saturday and crashed into a tree. He's not with us anymore. What happened to Frank? He was technically sober for 29 years and high as a kite every single day of those 29 years on adrenaline, on stress, on false dependencies, and the biophysical responses that come with that. You see, it's not the same, ladies and gentlemen, because the pain and the fear of letting go feels exactly like the pain and the fear of holding on. It's almost impossible to tell the difference. So the central dynamic of addiction really becomes when conditioned needs acquire the motivational strength of the basics. So rather than go get a drink of water, I go get a little bit of shame. Instead of doing some exercise for my body today, I'll isolate. I won't exercise. I'll breathe shallow. I gotta have it because my manufactured needs, the needs that have been manufactured in my body, in my spirit, by my existence in the dysfunctional family, leave me no other choice. I have to have it. I'm hooked. I'm as addicted to shame as I ever was to alcohol. I need that blame in order to survive, in order to get the energy just like I need that cup of coffee in the morning to get that little caffeine boost that gets me to lunch. I might need to go in and worry about not being good enough for my boss so I can oh, get that little bit of, there it is, that's what I need to get to lunch, right? So we're good at that, and, and you know, getting better, it isn't crazy, but it sure felt like it when I first started getting better, and I walked into those rooms at AA, it sure felt like it. For 15 years, I thought I was going crazy, until I rededicated myself to ACA, went back to ACA, and started looking at what was underneath my technical sobriety problem. It was more than technical sobriety, it was emotional sobriety. For me, technical sobriety comes, as they say, one day at a time. But I've learned in ACA that emotional sobriety comes one feeling at a time, not one day at a time. If I try one day at a time in ACA, it's not enough for me. I have to go one feeling at a time. As a baby boomer, I really enjoyed John Cougar Mellencamp. I never knew why. I loved that song. It hurts so good, because it really did. And, you know, when we come to the choice about being response-able to de-entrance and re-inhabit or stay crazy, to some degree it's a choice. If we want to finish, we can express or exhibit our emotions. But remember, half measures avails us nothing. So if we do the half measures and be impressed, 
That's the kid in the diagram that's trapped or impressed. We can choose to detox or we can choose to retox. And I hope I've really spoiled some good buzzes for you here today uh, when I've introduced this idea about retoxing on regular activities, what you might think are regular activities, but in fact they're quite toxic to you if you look at them in this way. We can accept what's so, or we can avoid it, we can deny, we can distort, we can manipulate, and stay insane. We can keep doing the same old things over and over again and expecting a different result, the classic definition of insanity. But to break it down, this thing called the dosing connection, let's break it down into the representation as symbols. Let's look at how the interior projections on our internal viewing screen affect us, how they give us a false sense of reality. We can look at the representation as symbols, how the exterior transference and the projections or impositions upon our stand-ins. These are the people in our life today who are stand-ins for the protagonists or the hurtful people in the past. And, of course, the representation of the eidetic memories and flashback material. Our original presentation is lost in time and space, so we have to unhook that Memorex and uh, reconsider the originals. As we come to the end, I'd like to share with you about Plato's allegory of the cave, which is quite fitting for the adult child. Plato proposed that there was this situation, and we've added a little bit to this, but essentially what Plato proposed was there's some prisoners, and they're in this cave, and as you can see, the prisoners are sitting down at the bottom, and they're looking up at the shadows on the wall. But the shadows, the distorted perceptions, are made by the puppet showman on the roadway in front of the fire. So as you can see, this not-reality called the cave is like our not-reality called our life. We are looking at what we think is reality. It's really shadows on the wall, these projections, the family here, and the not-reality, the various prohibitions and taboos and rituals that are not-reality and the various transactional dynamics of the victims and the victimizers and the covert and overt people here. These are all playing out. And the sh prisoners, they have no other means of orientation for this. So what we think is these prisoners are adult children. We have looked at the shadows on the wall. We've watched these movies in the back of the cave, this not reality and we have indeed become entranced by it. The answer? Well, exit the cave, right? There's some stairs, all you gotta do is walk out and go out into the sunlight. But in Plato's allegory, a prisoner did just that. Only when he got outside, was blinded by the light. I can't see, this is so unreal, it's not reality to me. So the prisoner goes back in the cave, back into where they think reality is. So the adult child 
will stay at the back of the cave and watch the movies in back of the cave rather than emerge into the sunlight because it's so painful to go there. How do we exit the cave? We turn off the projector. We stop the maladaptive behavior and we stop projecting onto the internal movie screen and onto the stage. And we stop recasting that play with the stand-ins. We don't reproduce the situations of our childhood with the people in our lives today. We have to stop the hypnotic entrancements and snap out of it. Reassociate with our body to come back online. We have to re-embody our own physical self. We have to remind, remember, and kick the habit of compulsively avoiding reality. We have to leave the cave or get out of that hole of deck where it's not real. To summarize, what has happened to us is that we have had trauma strikes. We have been pounded into a situation where we are now in heterostasis. We're on guard constantly. We're hyper-vigilant, hyper-dependent, hyper-aroused at all times. And we've learned to do the dissociative forgetting. We've learned how to use dissociation to our benefit and check out while still walking, talking, and looking normal. And we have played the cycle. We've got up and we've tried with the best of intentions to do it right this time, only to fail once more. And if you think about it, that's a self-abandonment, it's a self-shaming, where we try and we don't get it. Where did it leave us? We know all too well where it left us. It left us with 14 traits that we read at our meetings. You've seen some traits that Leslie's introduced for the workplace. You've seen traits of a closet abuser. And you've seen traits for the other side of the laundry list, the flip side of the laundry list. So that's where it's left us. And what needs to happen, again, we have to withdraw from withdrawal and stop playing this game of dissociation and reintegrate back to one whole person. But how do we do it? It's the steps. We take the steps. We work an honest program of recovery. And we take care of our basic needs. How will we know when it's finished? We have to go back to the flip side of our laundry list, to those integrated person that uh, is described by those particular events. So I tried to finish a little bit early. Uh, question in the back. I do not, the question was, do I have the material on the slides? I do not have hard copies at this time. However, if you will leave me your email address, I will email that to you. So I'll take a piece of paper over here. If you'll start a piece of paper, just write your name and email on there. If you want to include a phone number, that'll be okay too. And I will email that to you within a couple of days. Question here. Yes, ma'am. Generally in 12-step programs, um, I specifically in the big book, 
um, a strong statement in the Facebook is we are like men who have lost their legs and we can never recover. And intuitively, I've never agreed with that. Um, and what I hear you suggesting is, you know, the basis of, of what you're saying is, is that we can be whole. And, yes. and that is that is what I experience in my life. Um, but I just, and, and I'm fairly new, I've been ACA for about two weeks, um, but I've been in recovery for quite some time, and I, I just, I, and I didn't read that in the book, but I mean, is that what you're suggesting? Are you, in, in what you said about the prior, mm-hmm. the prior uh, workshop that you had in last year was, you know, stepping out of the disease concept. I mean, in disease in itself, that's another conversation, kind of the mm-hmm. definition of disease. But I mean, are you suggesting that that statement, that that is not true? And are you suggesting that? As a, uh, the question, as I hear you say, is relating back to the big book, the very strong statement that says, we're like men who have lost their legs, they don't grow back. We do indeed look at this as an injury model and not a disease model. Uh, for instance, you can recover from an injury, you can heal. I like to take the analogy of a burn victim. If I touch my finger to a stove and I burn it, and I get a blister, it certainly will heal. I've been injured, I've had a trauma, it will heal. Chances are, it'll heal pretty good and I'll have no impact. But what happens if I get burned by second or third degree burns over a large portion of my body? A much deeper impact, a much more critical injury, and I will still heal. However, I may have slightly reduced range of motion so I may not heal back 100% because of the physical nature of the burn, but I'm going to heal. So I believe that the injury model fits much, much better than the disease model. A disease model carries with it built-in shame. Something's wrong with me. Uh, I'm not normal. So we really want to move away from that disease model. We like to look at disease spelled with a Y. D-Y-S-E-A-S-E, a dysfunctional ease of the condition. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, We will in no way speak for AA or any other 12-step program. Uh, AA has helped millions of people, and I have great respect, and it actually helped me. Uh, I can never dis AA. I think that they have a way of looking at things that works for a lot of people. For me, I had to go deeper. Uh, Just looking at my experience with alcohol wasn't enough. I had to go below that to find out why I needed that anesthesia in the first place. Because for me, it was like I heard many people say in AA meetings, I knew I was an alcoholic from the first drink. And when you are in this aroused state of heterostasis and someone presents you with a good anesthesia like alcohol and I took that drink, I got that relief. My next thought was give me 10,000 million more of these. And that started my alcoholism and I knew almost from the beginning. In the back, yes sir. Um, what I wanted to talk about was uh, 
the disease concept in AA got started uh, quite a while back, but what they confused was the infectious disease model with a damage injury model. Like, uh, you know, you don't go into a bar and say, give me a, give me a shot of anthrax. You have to bend the elbow to put it inside you, so it's not like something was floating around out there and got in you. And it's, it's, it's better to think of uh, like black lung disease. Uh, sure enough, the coal dust gets in you, but sooner or later it damages your lungs, and that's the problem. And the other thing is that if you look at the first book, uh, the first AA edition of the AA Big Book, all the stories have been rotated out except for Dr. Bob's story now. But the original stories were written by guys and women that uh, had been affected by World War I. And they quite routinely were talking about habits. They would use the word habit all, all the time. They hadn't been using that disease model yet. It hadn't taken hold. And so uh, if, you, if you think of it as just, it's, it's disease. There's no question you're not in a state of ease. But it's not a disease in the sense that there has been a microbe that, that floats around and gets inside you. And they just confuse that, and that, that's, that's given a lot of uh, difficulty over the years. Thank you. I'll do my best Phil Donahue for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, my name's Deborah. Yes, ma'am. Um, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to articulate my question clearly, but I'm going to give it a try. Um, I'm about a year into recovery, and I'm those boxes that I placed myself in are beginning to become more porous and those painful feelings are coming out and um, at the beginning of this process and and now still but not as strongly those painful feelings coming up triggers that retox that you're talking about the arousal the depression all those um, reactions in the body and the mind and um, how do you you know, I, I have a 10-year meditation practice, I do a lot of yoga, and I am doing more and more in my body. So would you say just continue with those positive um, actions as these painful things come up? or how? The short, the, answer, the short answer would be yes. Remember, any reversal step that adds value to your recovery should be pursued relentlessly. So the body work, the spiritual work, the step work, coming out of isolation and working with others, and the re-experiencing of those memories must be reprocessed in the context of support and acceptance. You find that support and acceptance in these meetings and in these rooms and with these fellow travelers. Uh, we do have to remember, so we have to re-experience the way the body is reacting. And again, we have to do it in a measured way. Uh, in my own recovery, I could never do anything measured. I had to go right down to the deep end and jump in there. And I learned that that took me to retox. And it, it took me past the point of measured improvement. So I think understanding how our reaction occurs, knowing that that retoxification is there, gives us pause. And it allows us to stop short of the deep end. It's, uh, at least that's how it's been working for me. 
Does that answer your question? Yes. Yes, ma'am. The thing that I really enjoy about these ideas is the reception I get from the adolescents. If you could only be there to see a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old who has been living in terror, when they see this and they get it, there's just no hesitation, no resistance whatsoever. They grasp it and run with it, and when I see that, I know I'm onto something good. Because they, the younger, the less contaminated, the more pure their response. And when you get older like me and get beat up, it's just really hard to get down there to the real stuff. <laughs> Is that a question? Yeah. Uh, my, my problem from day one, uh, uh, when I came into the program, is, is I, I was surprised as heck that, that it, you know, about the laundry list because it fit me. And um, my family was not overtly um, abusive. You know, there, there was my, none of them are alcoholics. There was no physical violence in the house. Um, so obviously, stuff that they did must have been traumatic. Um, and uh, I'm having a hard time putting my finger on what it is that they did to, you know, what they did to me. And so my question is, 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 is it important to identify what it is they did to me, or can I recover, can I do recovery steps and still, you know, recover without ever really knowing what it is that I went through? I think the answer in one word is no. I believe we have to go and reprocess, re-experience, and refeel so that we can get past that and let it go. Uh, for me in my own recovery, my father's behaviors were in my face. They were on the surface. They were abusive and hurtful and very clear. What was more difficult for me was the behaviors related to my mother. My mother was a covert abuser. She would shame and abandon me in ways that looked like it was helping me, but truly hurt to the core. Real good example. I was a trumpet player, and I come from a little small town with, oh, five or six people in the whole trumpet section. And after a particularly nasty domestic abusive scene, my mom left my dad abruptly and went to the other end of the state. And at the, at the other end of the state was a very large school and the school had a big band. They had 25 trumpet players. And I was a pretty good little horn blower, you know? I can do all right. So at this very first meeting with the band director at the new school, my mom sits down and she's a loving mom. And she's just gonna try to help her son. She loves and so proud of me. She told that band director I was first chair, had always played first chair, and was probably better than anybody he had playing for him. Gee, thanks, Mom. So on one side, uh, there's my mom. She loves me. She's trying to help me. She's trying to build me up and ensure that I'd get embarrassed and shamed. But what did she do? She handed me a big old heaping helping of shame because now I could never be good enough. So my loving mother abused me right in front of that guy and nobody knew it was happening. So I see this occur, and as I work with families, this is the most difficult counter-transference issue I have. And trust me, I've spent lots of time talking with my individual therapists, 
my clinical supervisor and my clinical director, along with a trusted fellow traveler or two about my own feelings to the situations I encounter with the families just like my own. They come sit in the rooms and abuse their kids right in front of me. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. When you do have an adolescent that gets it and they try to withdraw, they're slammed. One young lady had a really high-functioning family, no alcoholism, no addiction, no apparent dysfunction whatsoever. The young lady was tormented. She was having all kinds of problems. At the moment in a session when she and I talked about beliefs and experiences in the home of origin, we were going down to do the work, the parent pulled her right back up into the now and said, but what about that thing that happened last week? And when the parent did that, I immediately blocked and said, excuse me, Dad, hold on. Do you realize what you did? She was trying to go to beliefs and you pulled her right back up into, if looks could have killed, ladies and gentlemen, I'd have been dead three times right there. Because that man looked at me and he thought, I could just feel it. How dare you? ask her to get out of the game. We need her. She gives us our drugs. We don't take alcohol. We take shame. We don't inject heroin. We inject blame, recrimination, negative self-talk. And we're hooked on it. How dare you take that away from us? And I haven't seen them since. God bless them. I hope they find help. Yes, sir. Uh, in answering this question, since I know everything, <laughs> <laughs> one, thing, one thing that's really helped me out is when something occurs in my life. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, somebody important doesn't show up on time or they cancel mm -hmm. on me. Um, the right hand, the left hand thing, we take the right hand and the right, like the parent, you know, why mm -hmm. do you
I love it because what you're telling me is your dad taught you to play the game. He taught you that there were rules, they were his rules, and you had to follow them. You got no option. Uh, much the same in my home. Uh, my dad was the alcoholic, my mom the codependent. But the game was unstated, and the rules were unwritten, but they were, they were incontrovertible. I couldn't break them, and I had no option to check out of that game. I believe that the non-dominant hand work, uh, Michelle L., my dear friend and fellow traveler, has done some tremendous workshops and work in that area, and I've shed some tears with her as the little guy wrote those words. I believe that when we're watching a movie and we feel that tightness in our throat and the tears come to our eyes as that's the little guy in there. I believe that. I believe when we're driving down the road and we smell a, a familiar aroma and, and our skin tingles and I think that's the inner child recognizing those things. And you said that we don't just remember these memories, we relive them. So when something happens to us today and the symbolism is oh so strong and oh so connected, there's no difference. We're not just remembering them, the same feelings of terror, the same feelings of being smothered, of being uh, disintegrated are the same as we felt then. And the, the problem is we've lost the connection. We don't know how to connect them back. If we look at the six essential tasks of recovery that we proposed last year, first task is recalling, excuse me, it's recognizing. We got somatic, cognitive, and relational issues. And that second part is recalling how those got pounded into us, which sets us up for the third essential task, which is to begin to disobey. And as we begin to disobey those forced introjects, those security operations that have been pounded into us through being a player in the game, as we begin to say, wait a minute, I don't have to do that anymore. There's a curious phenomenon. You mentioned, someone mentioned the feelings coming back. Well, when those feelings come back, one of them is, I'm going to kill those people that did this to me. The retaliation. And that's as natural as falling off a log. I tell the kids, you know where that came from, this retaliation? It came from the caveman days. It's hardwired in. This need to retaliate against that which hurts us. So we're told that we're awful people if we have these thoughts of, annihilating that thing that hurts me. But we don't realize it goes all the way back to the cavemen. So you and I, we're cavemen and we're out looking for food and we got our clubs and we're walking along and there's a couple of saber-toothed cats stalking us. And sure enough, they leap out. But that cat's foot don't even hit the ground before you whip out your club and whack! You get him. You retaliate. But I've been watching the birds and I don't react in time and what happens to me? I get eaten up, don't I? So retaliation against that which hurts us serves a very essential purpose. And when it comes back as we begin to disobey those forced conditionings, the traumatic conditioning, 
we're told that we're defective for having that feeling. But it's a natural feeling, and, and our goal the, in recovery, we just want to channel that energy. We don't want to inhibit that energy. That's one of our problems, is the inhibition of what needs to be expressed. So we need to take that retaliation energy and direct it towards fruitful work. Let's go do some journaling. Let's do some role play. Let's get with a fellow traveler and do some inventory work. Let's direct that energy there. Now, when we can get our energy, we are ready for the fifth essential task, which is beginning to separate. We can say, hey, hey, wait a minute. That's not me. I see what it was doing to me. I see where it came from. I know I don't have to do it anymore. And I got a lot better things to do with this energy. And that's not me. This is me. I'm that guy that likes to have fun. I'm the little kid that loves to create, likes to hear music. That's me. So now I can separate the me's and the not me's, the introjects from the human being that I truly am, my true self, that little guy that cries at the moon. So the last essential task of recovery is independence. So once I separate the me's from the not me's, I can now be independent. And I can now have a chance to become an integrated person, of being open to experience, of being autonomous. And that's the blessing of recovery. And I think that's the thing that ACA reaches that no other 12-step fellowship. I see that, um, you know, when you're you've got to learn in my own personal recovery in ACA you know I found that I have to, more lights have to be here you know doors have to be opened mm -hmm. which occurs over time to be able to identify what are those issues that we have to work on you know what are those things that occurred in my childhood that manifest themselves into my adulthood and how do I correct that behavior as an adult now mm -hmm. but that takes I mean that takes time, which I have found my patience level, even though I've been persistent, my patience level sometimes wanes from time to time. You know, as I think any natural for any human being. Because what I find, what I, and then I want to comment also here, the allegory of the, Plato's allegory of the cave, what I find is there's one part missing that's kind of like I'm listening and I'm observing other people because all of a sudden I think everybody, once I'm out of the cave, should be as enlightened as I am. Got, you know, <laughs> utopia. And so I find this other person or people like mm -hmm. trying to drag me back in the cave. And those are through experiences that I've learned through ACA recovery that aren't correct any longer. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. I heard you describing an onion. When I first came to the programs, the 12 step rooms, I got this idea about the onion and the layers. But nobody told me my onion was the size of a beach ball. <laughs> So I just have to peel layer after layer, and I think I got it down to about maybe a soccer ball now. But I'm still peeling. <laughs> yes, Eileen. Um, on the cave thing, um, my boss's wife had given him a jar with little pieces of paper that said, "Eat the thought." And one day he came out and handed me one, and it said, "If you don't like the hole you're in, stop digging." Yes. And I realized at the time that I had gotten out of the hole because of recovery. But 
I wasn't doing anything. I was just out, and it was starting, you know, time for me to start living my life. Uh, does it make any difference um, to know where that other person is coming from? Like if the other person did it, I don't, it doesn't make any difference if that person did it kind of innocent out of their own. What I'm hearing you say virtue, is, does, does it matter if the person, like my mom, was trying or not trying to hurt me with her statements? Yeah. I truly believe her intent was to not hurt me. I think her intent was to help me. As I look back on it, I see that she was playing her own role from her own game. In her family, extending compliments was a form of withdrawing from reality. So her family would attend to negative feelings by uh, false affirmations, by uh, saying things, oh, it'll be okay, it really doesn't hurt. And in fact, it did hurt. So they were, they had their own way of dealing with reality by retreating from it. And I think my mom, that was the way that she played the game, that she would lie and misrepresent in the moment to avoid that hurtful dynamic of shame in that moment. But my mother never really knew how that extended. She didn't know about the game. All she knew was there was a play happening and that this is what she did. And I believe that because of the nature of the abuse she suffered at the hands of her own father and later her husband, that she, she had learned helplessness. She knew that if she tried to counter my father, she was met with punishment. And if she tried to help him, she was also met with punishment in the form of shame and ridicule. And he would take things out of her hand, and this is how you do it, even when she tried to help. So I think she was relegated to the, the only thing she could do which was just help with her words, however shallow and however false they were. She thought she was helping, but God bless her, she wasn't. And, uh, uh, how I dealt with that emotional pain, Lupe, was through grieving. Uh, I had some tears. I did do some journaling. I actually did some non-dominant handwriting through workshops with Michelle. And I remember one time there was a question that I was asking the guy. And I asked him one question and he didn't want to answer that. He came right out with a different answer and it was related to my mother. And uh, it was a stunning event for me because of the, at that moment I saw the power of the non-dominant handwriting because it truly was coming from somewhere that I wasn't connected with at the moment. It was from that inner child who was saying he just wanted this mama to be truthful, to accept him for who he was, not for who she wanted him to be. And it was a truly a, a moment in my recovery that uh, provided me great improvement at that point but again my behaviors related to my dad were easy to disentangle they're right in my face but with my mom it was really twisted and deeper i think there's a natural prohibition against taking the inventory of the mother 
often it's the mother who protects us from the hurtful dad, who goes to school, who sues the injuries, who tells the neighbors the lies to cover up the madness. And it's the moms that make things all better. So how do we go and uh, push back against that in our recovery? It's very, very difficult. But I think ACA has the answers, and uh, they've brought some to me. Uh, one last question before we break up. Yes, ma'am. I'm the middle of five siblings, uh, brother and sister older and two brothers younger, and uh, I'm, well, there hasn't been much connection with them, and I'm making little steps towards reconnecting with some of them, and, you know, as I get the courage to do that, but, and I've been sharing with this a couple times today with people, that what keeps coming up is that as soon as I'm around them, I'm the helpless kid. That was my role mm -hmm. in the family. I was invisible, the lost child, but, but definitely they see me as helpless. And as I see myself coming out of that role, no longer willing to be that, but I want to connect with them. I miss them. It seems crazy to me. We had a totally dysfunctional, a lot of sexual abuse. It was a lot of physical abuse. Just it was a nightmare. But I, there's something in me that I want to take as little steps as I can to connect with them in some way. So I kind of make a little step and see what their response is. And then if it's more like how it used to be, well, then I kind of back up a little bit. And then I have to kind of regroup and say, OK, I'm going to try again. So I, my question is, is uh, staying centered within myself as I step out to them, like a good way to, I don't want to be that helpless kid and I don't want them to see me that way, but it seems like old habits are hard to break. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they aren't a part of my growth and my change. So it's almost like they just flip back into that immediately. So I guess what's a good way for me to stay grounded other, I guess, keep coming to meetings and journal and all that stuff. But. Yes, I, for me, the way it worked is I had to look at what I do in my relationships today and draw parallels. So if you notice that we mentioned replacements or stand-ins. So in my current recovery work, I try to look for patterns of behavior that match. And I'm looking for those replacements. So for me, what I have to do is get to the dynamic of it and not necessarily the context in which that dynamic occurs. So the dynamic where I seek an affirmation, I want to be recognized for an idea, and when I put it out there and the recognition don't come and the abandonment occurs, I can do that whether it's a project at work whether it's something happening in my hobby of dirt biking where I had an idea to do something and the guys didn't recognize it, or whether it's in a presentation working with a friend. Who, so I look at the dynamic, not necessarily the actual happenings of the moment, but I'm looking for that dynamic. And that's where that second essential task of recollection comes in. So I connect a physical, a cognitive, or a relational component physical, maybe my back's hurting, I got a sour stomach, I get a migraine, the cognitive, maybe I'm having racing thoughts, maybe I'm confused easily or I forget things, or maybe I'm waking up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep because it's all running in my head, 
cognitive issues and relational the family we I keep trying to improve my relations but it doesn't work so I look at those base dynamics and then for me what works is looking at what's going on today because for me it's easier to deal with what's happening right now so if I can take what I'm doing today a good 10th step inventory for today together with the awareness that I develop by working these transactional process awareness issues and I can make a connection for me that's how it works yet nothing takes the place of going to the original trauma and doing that work working with my own individual therapist with a fellow traveler in the meetings allows me to do that even uh, writing in message boards where I can read someone else's experience and relate mine. It all is a reversal step. It's positive for me. And I can't give you any one thing that works. I think it's like a shotgun. You gotta fire all the pellets you got at it and, and hope most of them hit. So, yes ma'am. Uh, we're out of time, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to thank you for your attendance today. And uh, there is a sheet going around. Who has the sheet for email? Uh, okay, it's going around. So I'll send you guys emails of this and a website or two where you can find more information.